Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book seven of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, part four, chapters four through six. Let's start the show. As Roland, Susanna, and Oi continue their trek across the white lands of Empathica, King gives us a detailed look at the process of hunting deer, tanning their hides, and making clothing, all while Mordred continues to follow the Cotet. Eventually, the remains of the Cotet reach a small settlement where a man named Joe Collins provides them food and a comedy show that may have deadly consequences, but doesn't thanks to a deus ex machina. This section ends with an analysis of the Robert Browning poem and the discovery of Patrick Danville before heading back on the road towards the Dark Tower. Jay, my unenthusiastic reading of the book recap and the utter lack of anything sort of exciting in the book recap sort of gives you a feel of what I thought of this section of the book. Um, I thought King did a nice job in channeling his inner Herman Melville and giving us a whole section (laughs) on the hunting of a creature to laborious detail that really didn't forward the plot at all. And then there was some other stuff that happened that was seemed sort of important, but ultimately didn't really get us anywhere. Yeah. While I was reading this section of the book, I found myself wondering what is happening? Like, why are we, why are we even doing this? Like, I just, this whole passage seemed like it could have been condensed into a few pages and I, couldn't understand what Stephen King was trying to accomplish here. Like, why spend so much time on the hides? Why build up Dandelo for so long and then, like, kind of have him vanquished almost immediately? Uh, I, I'm just puzzled by this. What, what do you think is going on? Well, Jay, I mean, we're very early in the series, and there's lots and lots of pages to go before we get to the end. So I'm sure that all of this will make sense in the thousands of pages left in the story, right? Oh, yeah. That's right. I forgot. (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. We're in the last hundred pages of the book, basically. Uh, That's not it. I don't know. I mean, maybe we should take these one at a time. So why a chapter on hides? Who knows? Did King have a research assistant who, you know, he, he sort of set off on a goose hunt and said, hey, could you give me a little bit of information about how somebody would hunt deer and and turn that into clothing. And they came back with just a stack of books and he felt obligated to say, oh yeah, I will use this research that you gave me and just went into great detail on all this happened. But as I think you've pointed out, haven't they been doing this since the get-go? Yeah. Like they've been traveling for months now. Um, and even in book three, they talked about how they didn't roll and create shoes for them. Yeah. yeah. So this should have been the first time that Susanna sees, oh, wow, this is how Roland uses a needle to create stuff. Like, I, I don't know. It's just a lot of detail. I mean, I guess it's sort of fascinating if you're into that, but I'm sort of at a loss as to myself as to why there's a whole chapter on hides. Yeah. I mean, another way you can maybe uh, question this section is like, is King stalling? Mm. Is he actually trying to avoid the end of the story himself like as he's writing it is he just is he reluctant 
to reach the end. Not because he doesn't know how it will end at this point, or he's, he doesn't know what words to put on the page. He just, it's like that old friend. He's, he's not ready to say goodbye. And could that be it? Could, could he actually be inflating the size of his manuscript just so that he doesn't have to say the end on the last page yet? It's, it's a theory. It's a, it's a good theory. Uh, better than my theory, which is that Roland and Susanna had this long journey across this snowy land of Empathica, and he wants us to feel the long, arduous journey by giving us pages and pages of material that just sort of delay the inevitable. And just like they have to go through this painful journey, so do we by reading these details. But King seems to contradict himself, or maybe has his characters contradict his structure a bit. They spend all the time tanning the hides, and obviously they can't do this while they're on the move. But once they have the hides, for the most part, once they've created clothing that will keep them warm and allow them to begin moving, suddenly Roland is in a big hurry. Mm. Yeah. I don't understand what a couple more days would have made different here. They could have stayed and made even more things or, I, I don't know, just made use of the rest of the hides. They had more hides than they needed. So it went from, we got to do this, we got to work really hard, we got to work fast, we got to keep watch out for Mordred, and before we're kind of done, we're going to just get going because suddenly we're in a hurry. Are we in a hurry or are we not in a hurry? Are are we as the readers, is the book as a structure, are the characters involved, are they in a hurry or are they not? Um, it seems to contradict itself here and there. Agreed. And you brought up Mordred, which I think is interesting because they realize that he is a threat, but at the same time, they're allowing him to grow stronger theoretically. Yeah. And I would think that there being two, three, if you count OI members here, they would best be suited by ambushing Mordred, setting a trap for Mordred, or being on the attack towards Mordred. Absolutely. Um, I guess if I had one person on my back trail, I would do something about that threat because, again, it seems more dangerous the longer you let him live. And again, is this King's fault? Is it the character's fault? I don't know, but it seems as if Mordred is a pressing threat more so than the weather, more so than the lack of clothes. Maybe that's something you should take care of first. And again, it contradicts the whole fact that are you in a hurry or are you not in a hurry? And what? how does Mordred play into that? Because if you're in a hurry to get away from him, then you should either take care of him or always be running. And if you're not, then you should stay put and, and deal with that issue. I agree. And they had ample opportunities to just basically either stand their ground and wait for Mordred to catch up with them or backtrack and force that interaction at any point. But instead, it's kind of like both Susanna and Roland have that low-key telepathic connection to Mordred because one of them is sort of his pseudo-mother and the other is his pseudo-father. Right. But they could have turned the tables on him. Yes. Roland's always like, uh, yeah, he's a little bit off to the distance, and he's 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 not coming after us tonight. I just have that feeling. Yes. Meanwhile, whenever we get Mordred's perspective, he's like, oh, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get him. But not now. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, what's going on here? Yeah. I, I, I got the feeling that Mordred, this creature of impulse, this creature of desire and power, wouldn't hesitate. If right. he had an opportunity, he wouldn't hesitate. He wouldn't put any of this off. And I have a feeling that Roland, being the master strategist that he is, and the very much 
experienced uh, fighter would also not allow this. I think they they both would act differently than they do. And I think it's in service of, I guess, how King wants the end of the book to be, as opposed to making his characters act the way that they they ought to, according to what they've done in the past. Yep. So we get another, I guess, big bad here. Like if we're thinking in terms of who 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 are the antagonists at this point, we've mm-hmm. got sort of the Crimson King at the top, Mordred second, and then Dandelo, who we've been sort of warned about. Uh, we don't know who or what or when or why a Dandelo is, um, mm-hmm. but we finally meet Dandelo here, and it turns out that Dandelo is the identity that joe collins is covering up for um and you know dandelo is something that was introduced at eddie's death eddie whispered it to jake Mm -hmm. upon jake's death jake whispered it to oi so that oi would know um oi eventually sort of mind melded with roland and roland was able to pick up the idea of dandelo and then roland told Susanna, so that Susanna knows who Dandelo is. So we get this sort of string of Dandelo's important, Dandelo's important, he's a big concern. And with his dying breath, two different characters have 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 passed this on because this is a big danger to Roland. Yeah, and, and what are the chances of just even the name staying in one piece yeah. through this game of telephone, right? Like Dandelo, that doesn't make sense. That's something I've never heard before. He must have said Dandelion, you know? <laughs> right. And it's like, before you know it, they were going to be looking for, you know, dandruff shampoo. And <laughs> they would never have come across Joe Collins. So Joe Collins, who seems to be at first... uh a man from our world who's been warped into to Roland's world here and is living in this abandoned town with his scraggly horse on the edge of civilization. Uh, somebody who's actually seen the Dark Tower, according to the Polaroid picture that he has on his wall. Uh, mm-hmm. He he able he's able to offer a respite for Roland and Susanna and Oi. Um, but it turns out that he is not who we thought he was. He is in fact a Dandelo, who is a empathetic vampire of sorts who seems to feed on the emotions of others and he best brings this about by causing uproarious laughter even in the normally stoic roland um and almost brings roland to his death and luckily through a series of events suzanne is able to escape and finish dandelo within pages of him being revealed to be the threat uh why did that happen jay like has it been worth the 400 page lead up to Dandelo just to have him vanquish that easy and really doesn't have any sort of association as far as we can tell with Mordred or the Crimson King is just a vampire that is a obstacle in the way here. Um, I'll start off by saying I was a little bit disappointed by the fact that Dandelo was made to be this big threat. Then we later learned that he actually is a really big threat like the being that he is the cosmic level of of danger that dandelo represents is significant but he is in the story for such a brief period and beaten so perfunctorily that it diminishes him and it diminishes the the importance of even having him in the story i felt like dandelo should have been treated like the three kings we didn't know that they were coming. 
until we came across them. And then they were a minor threat. They were clearly a threat. They had some you know, devious plans for the, the travelers, but they were able to use their gunslinger skills and their, their wits to outsmart this threat and move on with their journey. And they were in the story about as long as Dandelo was. Yep. So why, why make Dandelo this, this cosmic threat, this, this interstellar vampire, um, uh, to only have him basically be as much of a, as important as the three Kings. Right. Um, it's not worth it. Just, just make him something, you know, make him, make him another challenge on the journey, but don't make him the thing that he is. I, I think that that was a, a, a bad turn and, and don't give us so much warning. Don't make such a big fuss about it. Don't have the dying Eddie and the dying Jake, like make this, this thing out to be like the, the biggest obstacle that you will face. Yeah. And and why is it that Eddie on his deathbed gets this vision or this warning of Dandelo? Like, why not mention Morgrid? Why not mention the Kings? Like, why not mention any of the other opposite? Hey, maybe get some clothes before you head off into the snow. Like, this is the one yeah, thing. It's cold. Yeah. This is the one thing that from, you know, the, the last piece of lucidity in, in Eddie's mind that he's able to pass on is Dandelo. And... You know, it, 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 it's that's pretty good, Eddie, by the way. Yeah. Dandelo. That, that was a better one, I think. Yeah. Uh, it makes me wonder, like, well, wh- why, why did Eddie pull that out of the, the midst of time and, and think this is what I need to warn him about when there's plenty of other danger? There's even a giant centipede creature in the bottom of a castle. I mean, I was more scared by that than I was by Dandelo. Yeah. <laughs> You know, that was like a real threat that <laughs> yeah. they, they, they just barely got yeah. away from. Like, why not say, get fire? There's a giant insect creature that's going to eat you in the castle. Like, there was lots of things. And it's just weird. Like, I was expecting more from the standalone. And then the only way that King can figure out a way to have his heroes beat this threat is through a deus ex machina. And he doesn't even present it as it is as a natural deus ex machina that's built into the story. He just says, here comes the deus ex machina, <laughs> shines a giant spotlight on it, calls it a deus ex machina, and then explains why it solves their problem to the characters and us, the reader. It's crazy. I mean, this is where like the meta structure just tumbles for me. I, I like King has been experimenting with and then went full bore into the metafiction. And now I think he's he's punched through to the other side and I don't even know what awaits us there anymore. Yeah. I mean, so King, the author slash character, needs to know that at some point Suzanne is going to go into the bathroom and see this note that's labeled yeah. Deus Ex Machina. And the way he brings that about is nice, right? Like, I think you and I agree, like her getting the sore on her mouth early on, and it can be easily explained by the radiation that's in the area. Mm -hmm. And we've we've been told that other uh, people in the area have sores and stuff. So it's not unusual for her to have this cancerous sore that just happens to split open at the right time and she needs to go to the bathroom. So that all seems to make sense. But then to say, hey, this is Stephen King. I'm here to save your life again. Um, it brings up so many questions, right? Like our understanding was that maybe King had this power once and he used it to pass that key card along to Jake way back when. Right. 
But then it turns out that no, I guess he's got a second time to do it. And if he had a second time, why not a third time? Like what what's what's the limit of these powers of Deus Ex Machina that King can introduce? And why here? And why now? And if he has this power, and we're to determine that King has created these characters and is writing these stories, why not just write them a different way? Why allow Jake to die? Why allow Eddie to die? It, it's sort of that whole thing of like, if God exists, why does he kill good people? Why does he allow bad things to happen? And in this sense, it's like, if hey, if King's a writer and he can solve issues that our characters have at the drop of a hat, why not allow the characters to solve it on a drop of a hat? You know, why give them, do they have any free will at all or not? And, or is it all being directed by King? And then when he needs to, it's either, I haven't written it well enough, so I need to give him a deus ex machina or, hey, I just want to point out that I'm still in control of this. It's just, as you said, it sort of boggles the mind and introduces so many questions that are really not worth it at this point in the story for where we are. Like, I want to get to the end and find out what happens and to have King sort of, hey, look, I'm still here and I'm fiddling with the story doesn't really make much sense. And I'm terribly disappointed by the way King went about this. I feel like he either could have fully embraced the nature of the deus ex machina and not only provide some information, but make that part of how our heroes escape the clutches of the villain, Mm. right? Don't just write, this is the deus ex machina, do an anagram puzzle (laughs) for Odds Lane and Dandelo, and there you go. Now Now you can go defeat him. That doesn't help Susanna actually kill Dandelo because she just uses the gun and shoots him twice and he's dead. So if at any point anybody holding one of Roland's guns could have killed Dandelo, then you don't need the deus ex machina. All you need is for them to rely on their instincts that this is a threat that, and he must be killed to save their lives. And Susanna was already getting suspicious. Yes. Then the sore split open because she was laughing. That snaps her out of the laughing fit. All of the Dandelo's illusions come crashing down. Susanna clearly sees what is happening, draws her gun, fires it, and enemy's dead, right? That gives her agency. That gives her (laughs) an opportunity to be the hero in this moment. Instead, that's taken away from her because of the deus ex machina. Or go full bore into the deus ex machina and say, here, look inside the medicine cabinet. There's a special bullet you can put in the gun that's the only thing that can kill him. If I hadn't put this here for you, no matter how many times you shot him, he's going to keep coming after you, right? Right. Here's the deus ex machina. It's this magic bullet. Shoot him with this, and he goes away. Uh, One end of of that spectrum or the other, I think I would be much happier with. But King went right down the middle, and he took all the magic out of it. Yeah. And it takes away from that great moment when Roland bows before Susanna and says, you know, like, you saved my life. I'm indebted to you. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Susanna, through the voice of Detta, is just like, get up. You know, like, you've saved my life any number of times. I don't need this. But, like, if she had that agency and we knew that it was all her that did that, it would bring more to the fact that, you know, there's an actual respect between Roland and Susanna because he realizes that, you know, for her arc, she's become a full gunslinger. If he, right? Like she realizes the danger that he didn't realize. She was able to get rid of the threat that he was not able to take care of. Like that would be a nice 
uh, bow on her storyline of I've become a, a gunslinger. And it seems like that's what we're doing to some extent, right? Like Eddie had his arc. Jake right. to some extent has his arc. That would be, I mean, we're getting to the end of the, the story. We would think that Susanna's story, whether good or bad, is coming to an end very soon. That would seem to be a nice way to tie it up. And it is tied up here. And he does thank her, but it doesn't seem as earned as it could have been. Yeah, because she had the help of Stephen King. Yep. With the Deus Ex Machina. Yes. Yes. So King's not uh, quite done. He brings out the Robert Browning poem and gives a photocopy that he's able to send through and actually has circled passages within the poem and said, hey, look at here. This explains, Suzanne and Roller are like, yes, this explains exactly what happened. It's right here in these sections. Wow. Is, is this Browning poem about us too? Is there another person who has influence over our lives just like King did? Um, the only thing I could think of here, Jay, when I read this section was James Joyce said about his novel Ulysses that he had put enough hidden meanings and references in it that scholars would, it would take them a hundred years to find them all. And and here I thought King's sake, eh, you know what, just wait another 10 pages and I'll explain it all to you so, <laughs> so that you don't have to go through all that trouble to do research and figure it out yourself. I'm just going to lay out exactly where I got the inspiration for this stuff. Um, again, is there a point to this? I can't think of one. I, I mean, if you're into this story and you've come this far, surely you have cottoned on to the fact that King was inspired by the Browning poem. Yep. You've probably even read it because you're interested in the poem that inspired King originally. And King quotes from it in several of the books in the series, in like the, his forewords or in... His... It was in an epigraph for one of the books. I think this yes. one, in fact, yeah. So we don't need it to be in the text of the book. We get it. And I, I know we're working in this whole metafiction thing, but to go this far, to, to maybe if the characters were visiting with King the character again, and he had on his bookshelf a collection of Robert Browning poems, and, you know, and there's like a bookmark hanging out of it and says, you know, Dark Tower, right? Okay, I get it. But... Do we have to have the photocopy of the poem and King circling it saying like, dear Roland and Susanna, you might want to know this. Like, I, I just, I think it's, uh, it's a step too far yep. and I don't get it. Yeah. It doesn't seem to help our characters at all, except to make them go, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, so there's this hint that maybe Gan, the spirit that has inspired King has been around for so long that it inspired Browning in some way too. And that somewhat interesting, I guess, like maybe there's this lineage of people that the white spirits are working through for good in this world. And Browning is part of that heritage, just like King is and continues on through Roland. But I mean, that's not quite, I mean, I've talked before about how that part of the mythology doesn't interest me as much as what's actually happening here. And, you know, from what we know of Roland, like Roland is a man of action and not interested in all this other stuff he's got a plan and he knows what he wants to do and how he wants to do it and just adding this piece of hey let's do some textual analysis of a old poem just doesn't add to the story and doesn't seem like something that these characters at this time would care that much about yeah and it did make me wonder when king was crafting the character of dandelo and his aspect of 
being a comedian and living off of the off of the emotions, especially the laughter of his victims. Do you think he read through the Browning poem and picked out the verses and said, I'm going to make a character based off of this description? Or do you think he had an idea of what Dandel needed to be to make sense in the story and then reverse engineered that to see where in the Browning poem that best lined up and then said, oh, this is almost word for word. Perfect. Let me just send a photocopy through magic to our characters. Yeah, I think the latter, right? You think? I was thinking the, the other the way. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. It's it's all sort of weird, you know? Like, obviously, you know, he, the fact that he has a character named Cuthbert and it's in the poem and in his books, yep. you know, he's... Even if he's internalized it because he's read the poem so long and it's been with him since he started writing the series, there might be a part of that. But I think it's a little bit of six of one, half dozen of the other, you know? Because it's not like he's gone through and given us, I mean, maybe, I'd, I'd have to go back and look at the poem, does, but does every stanza match up with something that happened within the series? I don't think so. I don't think so either. It so it's just sort of like, well, why why these and why now? So I think it might be a little bit of like, hey, I've got this idea of what I want to do and have this creature and blah, 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 and maybe it does sort of fit up and I'll add a little bit of flair here and there to make sure it matches up. To agree with your point, I, I don't think that the story of the Dark Tower has ever really had much to do with the Browning poem, except for the name, the Dark Tower, and Roland's Roland. name. Yeah. And then, and I guess the name Cuthbert, right? Right. Um, so just to tie up this section, the last chapter is about Patrick Danville, who I'm not going to get too much into, but he seems to be a uh, young man who... Dandelo slash Joe Collins was using as I think the analogy they use is a milk cow so that he had his mm -hmm. continual source of emotions to feed on. Um, and it turns out he's a great artist and he is also mute because his tongue has been ripped out at some point. And it's another new character that gets introduced that seems like it's going to be important as we head into the last hundred pages here or so, and probably ties into another novel that we have not discussed. Is that correct? Yes. The character of Patrick Danville is introduced in another Dark Tower-related book. Okay. So um, I'm guessing we're going to get more about him in our next section, so we can talk more at length about Patrick here. But for the time being, we have somebody else who has joined the group and seems to be important and uh, takes us to the end of this section. So, Jay, I know we seem a pretty down on this section. I think one thing, and you and I have talked about this before, even when there's a section that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us necessarily, and even when it's something that we don't like, I think we can agree that King is still a hell of a writer. Like, I, oh, was, yeah. I'm, I was engaged throughout this and interested to find out, you know, what's happening. Um, it's always sort of interesting to see how things are played out. You know, the the comedic scene is really sort of fun and interesting. Like I could picture it all and see how it would happen. And I was mm -hmm. like, hey, what what's going on here? This is fun and exciting. But, you know, it's just when I take a step back and think about it, I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even King's descriptions of the, the tanning process oh sure w was well written but i i enjoyed the writing but i still found myself asking that question like why are we spending so much time on this yeah so yeah i i guess i, I was of two minds like 
good writing. I don't mind spending time with this, but what's King at? You know, what what is there a master plan here that isn't obvious to me yet that may become so? Or am I going to get to the end of this book and the end of the story and have completely forgotten about <laughs> the hides that they tanned and that he, we spent so many pages talking about it? Yeah. Yeah. But I'm again, I think we talked about this very, very early on in the series. This seems like another Star Trek episode. I think there's an emotional vampire in an episode of Star Trek that it's actually a reverse. Don't they defeat it by laughing at it because it's actually drawing on their anger and yes the crew of the enterprise and the klingons have to laugh to sort of get it off the enterprise and that's how they defeat it as opposed to this one which laughter is actually their downfall so mm. um so always be wary of how you're going to use laughter when you encounter a cosmic vampire of sorts whether it's for good or evil you better figure that out first <laughs> <laughs> speaking of laughter is it time for fun stuff? Hey, very nice segue there, Mr. Russo. Hey, thanks. So one thing I noticed is that uh, our friend Joe Collins is from the Akron area, which is about 15 minutes from where I'm at now. So I'll be on the lookout if I attend any comedy shows nearby. Uh, just yeah. to, I'll be a little bit wary. Yeah. And in fact, when he was doing his comedy tour, he occasionally visited Cleveland, Ohio, which is known as the mistake on the lake. I thought that was pretty great. Yeah, you might think that. Um, yeah, you're from New York City, you know, the Big Apple, and <laughs> you might not think highly of our city, but as somebody who grew up in Cleveland, I consider the mistake on the lake a slur and not funny at all. Oh, then I cry your pardon, sir. <laughs> you have forgotten the face of your father if you make fun of Cleveland. <laughs> to be fair, Cleveland had a new nickname in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, it went along the lines of, if New York is the Big Apple, then Cleveland's a plum. Um, and outside of people who are around my age and who grew up in the Cleveland area, I don't think anybody is aware of that nickname except for us. Yeah, that, it sounds like that catchphrase <laughs> fell about as flat as uh, <laughs> it did when you just said it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the things I really liked in this section was we find out that Roland refers to uh, sitting down uh, to take a shit in the woods as sitting down on the log of ease. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it, it, it's better than the ones I've heard. If, if we're going to continue to make fun of Cleveland is taking the Browns to the Super Bowl, which uh, <laughs> it's a little more crass. <laughs> and it, it seems so like, like classy and almost dainty of Roland to like, you know, it's not the, the, sh the shit log or whatever. It's the, the log of ease. <laughs> Excuse me while I go powder my nose at the log of ease. <laughs> so I don't think Roland was telling a joke when he said that. Like, I think that that is actually his euphemism for it. But he mm -hmm. does tell a joke later on um, when they're, when he's explaining to Susanna how they're going to take care of dressing the deer. And he says, let's get the brains out. And Susanna asks one at a time. And Roland says, yes. So far as I know, brains only come one to a customer. And it, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it takes a second for uh, Susanna to get it. And then she's like, oh, my God, he's telling a joke in his Roland way. And it sort of sounds like something Eddie would say. Um, and Roland is happy with that. But it's definitely an Eddie-ism to yes. the one to a customer. As we can see, though, Roland doesn't have that much of a sense of humor because he finds Joe Collins' stand-up act uproarious when it was just sort of slightly funny. Yeah, to, to mostly not that funny um 
So another thing that I liked about this section was Susanna was taking a great amount of satisfaction in her hard work and doing for themselves. And then she reflected upon this realization that maybe she's becoming a Republican in her old age. <laughs> so I just I to I just responded to that with, well, shit. <laughs> like, and because she sounded kind of disappointed by this fact. As well she should. <laughs> oh. So we've talked before about how much we've sort of graded Eddie's one-liners on a sliding scale. There's been some really good ones and some really bad ones as he puts bullets into people throughout the mm -hmm. series. Um, but it's rare that we see anybody else sort of get a Arnold Schwarzenegger-esque one-liner. But we get one from Susanna here when she confronts uh, Dandelo as he's about to kill Roland. And he's like, stop! I want to tell you the one about the Archbishop and the Chorus Girl. And she yells, heard it. And then she blows him away. And I'm like, oh, that's concise and to the point and it, well within the context of the situation. So I like it. Yeah, I, that's a great one. Yeah. I, I think that's probably better than all of Eddie's. <laughs> yeah. See, we should have been spending more time with Susanna all along. That's right. Yeah. And when they make like 20 sequels to this, she's going to have to say that at some point in each one. <laughs> There you go. Heard it. And then the uh, the who come on. Yeah. <laughs> That's perfect. All right. Well, Jay, we are down to literally the last two sections of the book yeah. on our journey to the end of the Dark Tower. So that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 7 of the Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, Part 5, Chapters 1 through 3. And as a reminder, we'll continue this podcast after we wrap up the Dark Tower series with episodes on Dark Tower-related short stories, books, and other Stephen King writings. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Why can't you say Empathica? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>